Welcome to the Jaren Out Loud podcast. My name is Jaren, and I'm here to introduce you to you through strength, that you may learn to define it for yourself, discover joy in its pursuit, and develop the courage to live it out loud. I hope you enjoy the show. Healthy is no way to live. Most people who get involved in health and fitness are running from something. They just don't know it. I had to have been around 13 the first time I tried to lose weight. In my now professional opinion, I was only a little overweight, but it was enough that I was embarrassed of my body and wanted to change it. Prednisone from the hospitalizations that occurred two to four times a year for asthma, the frozen bullshit we lived on during tax season, and a generalized recommendation to be wary of anything too physical had made me allergic and inflamed. I was also built more like my mom which I took to mean that the stream of demeaning comments I always heard her say about herself also applied to me. I must also be a fat toad, a cow, a moose, and need to try every weight loss regimen I could get my hands on. That I, too, would need to read magazines or hire a trainer without telling my spouse. Eat healthy choice and snack wells, go to fen-fen clinics and optifast meetings, dress in a way that hides my stomach or save for liposuction since no one ever actually finishes losing weight. Being asked to do the thing to make everyone else laugh didn't help. The thing being smashing my tits together as a joke. Neither did the comments about my army hairs from my mom or being called fat chunk by my little sister. I snuck into my dad's side of the closet and tried to use the 15 to 30 pound dumbbells he had collecting dust. No wonder my dad isn't strong and can't protect us, I thought. With no clue what I was doing and far outclassed by the neglected equipment, I settled for my mom's Power 90 tapes and the exercise bands that came with them. I worked through whatever I could figure out and put everything away so I wouldn't get caught. If anyone saw me working out, then they'd know I was unhappy, and there wasn't much room for that. I just realized that my love of the pump started in the closet because I was afraid to tell my parents. My first diet consisted of Special K. That's it, just cereal. If Special K is healthy weight loss food for mom, then it should work for me. She only eats it at breakfast. I bet I'd lose weight way faster if I only ate Special K, I thought to myself. This diet lasted one day. I finished the box and got in trouble for eating all the Special K without an explanation as to why. I was 16 the second time I tried to lose weight. I had just undergone my second brain surgery, a revision of the shunt that was originally installed when I was 9 months old. I was born with a cyst in my brain. Simply put, a shunt is like a storm drain for the cystic fluid, routing it through a tube that runs from my head to my peritoneal cavity, where I can pee it out rather than have it slowly increase the pressure on my skull and on my brain until I'm super dead. Over the years that led up to this point, my brain grew around the original catheter, slowly constricting its efficacy and allowing cystic fluid to accumulate and create pressure on my brain. I was having headaches, blurred vision, and I could feel the pressure in my head. I could feel the catheter being tugged on when I turned my head. I'm pretty sure there's something wrong with my shunt, I told my mom, and we told the doctor. I described what I felt in as much detail as I could, but they didn't believe me, and denied getting a CT scan to verify my unfounded claims. I had had them done every six months or so throughout most of childhood. After six months of fighting with primary care doctors, I was able to get in to see the same neurosurgeon who did my first surgery. Upon receiving the results of the CT scan, he booked me for emergency surgery later that week. Including the first surgery, which was also done as an emergency, 
Those are two of the five or so times I've almost died. I was on powerful corticosteroids for several months following surgery and gained about 50 pounds between the side effects of the drugs and lack of activity from the vertigo that came with the sudden reduction in pressure. I remember them also causing some strange dreams and depression, although it's hard to attribute anything singularly to the medication. I still have difficulty remembering the parts of my life where disassociation and depersonalization have blocked memories, but this was also around the time my parents divorced. I welcomed any opportunity to be out of the house, so when my best friend's dad started working out, I asked for a gym membership so I could go with them. I managed to lose all the weight I had gained post-op by doing bicep curls and calf raises, the only muscles you can see while wearing a t-shirt and shorts, secretly buying protein shakes and original formula hydroxycut, which used to be the shit until you're dead, but I was okay with those odds. Once my one-year membership expired, I stopped working out. I was normal again, and there's no reason to work out if you aren't fat. I went to jail as when I was a fresh-faced 19-year-old with spiky black hair, weighing around 170. For the purposes of this conversation, jail was the first time my body was a major liability. I was terrified of being the smallest, weakest person inside and not being able to defend myself. I cried myself to sleep and didn't leave my bunk for the first three days fully aware that this also made me look weak, which didn't ease my fears. My bitch status was publicly confirmed when I received my first public punishment, 123 push-ups for not announcing my falsely claimed race before entering the bathroom. I'd also lied about being mixed race and was in a segregated tank full of skinheads. I took over four hours to complete my penance, not including a, a mealtime rest period, and I was sore for days. To me, it was a big flag that I was unable to defend myself. Being vulnerable signified a target on my back, a sentiment that pervaded my thinking for years to come. I swore that I would never be that weak again and I would outwork every person in the jail to prove it. I did double and triple workouts. I walked laps around the rec room anytime I was able. I started adding 10 push-ups each lap until I could do 100. I started adding pull-ups off the underside of the stairs when I got strong enough. Then I started working out with each of the race groups, water bags and towels with the skinheads in the morning, walking laps with push-ups and pull-ups by myself during rec time, and burpees with the Mexicans at night. I left jail with a goatee, 16-inch arms, and a paper bag full of my journals and artwork. Most professionals in the health and fitness industry are also running from something, but they don't know it either. As a term of my probation, I needed to either maintain full-time work or school. Since none of the things being run under my name and social security number satisfied requirements, I hit the workforce. I have interviewed at 50 places within walking distance of home. Despite getting far into the interview process, Geico passed on my shiny new felony and telling Costco that I often drop food and am too smart to push carts ended up being the wrong personal anecdotes to share since I was apparently interviewing for the food court or cart attendant positions. The smallest, saddest 24-hour fitness in San Diego hired me, though. I'd like to attribute it to divine ordinance and my natural charm, but four years of working there taught me they hired just about anyone into sales, since the average employee only lasts three months and more than one Cokie Robinson has made it to upper management. I took some creative liberty while explaining my history with fitness, highlighting my passion for frequent walking and bodyweight training. I was thankful to not be at home as much as possible and for the opportunity to continue working out so I didn't get fat and weak again. Since the gym was work, I would never have to be told I couldn't go. 
Mom was fine with me leaving home to work, just nothing else. I started eating mostly canned tuna, cucumber, and tomato salad, and hummus, since I was a healthy person now who ate healthy food. I transferred my membership sales job to another 24-hour fitness after moving to Oregon. The gym became my sanctuary and my lab. I was the new face in a new place, and my job was making friends. I could be anyone, and the better I got at adjusting, the more everyone loved me. I was the top sales counselor my second month, with over an 80% closing ratio, despite being the youngest and the newest. It didn't matter who walked in, I learned how to connect with them, make the gym feel disarming, teach them a few of the things I had learned, and convince them of the need for education if they wanted real results. I determined early on that I wasn't selling the gym, I was selling the reason they walked into the gym. Sell the sizzle, not the steak. So I spent all my time with the trainers, fitness manager, and front desk staff. Rather than sitting at my desk, I walked the gym floor or did my work from the front desk and got to know every person that came through the 100,000 square foot facility during the 10 to 12 hours I spent there each day. During this time, I also became obsessed with bodybuilding. I was starting to get attention for my physical changes and was fascinated by the working class misfits who pushed the limits. Kai Greene, the quiet underdog philosopher artist whose poetic pontifications and spiritual perspective on being jacked as fuck was also was always my favorite. I watched every video, read every article, and tried every weird exercise I could find, always looking for the commonality between the different approaches. Watching Kai train with his hood up and eyes closed taught me about mind-muscle connection, the importance of tension over weight, and of working quietly and consistently while everyone else is talking. Despite being around 300 pounds, Kai also moved poetically and was known for his bizarre but intense posing and stage presence. Being too big for regular clothes, being asked why I was always carrying pounds of chicken, devoting myself to something that most people couldn't do and didn't care about. Being a freak appealed to me. Suffering looked beautiful, and soon I was 250 pounds. I dieted down for a bodybuilding show in 2008, but that process is far from healthy. Three hours of cardio, two hours of lifting, six days a week on 1,800 or fewer calories towards the end, and stepped on stage weighing 176 pounds 10 months later. Imagine dying slowly and intentionally, ignoring every natural alarm your body sends to keep you from killing yourself. Eventually, you learn to ignore everything it tells you, shutting out pain, hunger, depression, joy, Death by Discipline With the sense of clarity that only comes from hunger, I decided to leave home and was subsequently disowned the week before the show. Since I was mocked or berated for being at the gym too much and cooking my own food separately from what the family was eating, it was more of a relief than that they missed the morning show and decided not to stay for the evening portion. I could relax and enjoy the first feeling of accomplishment that meant something to me. After the show, I stopped at every shitty place I had been deprived of that year and was back over 200 pounds 48 hours later from edema and bloating. The hormonal, adrenal, psychological, and emotional damage from that pursuit took years to fully realize and undo, but I also learned a lot about myself. I learned that I could stick to something no matter what. I could put my head down, hood up, and either do battle or take a hit. I had spent hundreds of hours with my demons while training. I took to studying a discipline, practiced what I learned, and accomplished something on my own. I could suffer until success. I was working front desk during my prep, having exchanged the income of sales for the flexibility of the service department. 
Being the face of a gym that makes money off its members never accomplishing anything and losing 70 pounds was quite the conversation starter, and I was recruited by the fitness manager after my show. Since, you know, I did it right in front of everyone and had already been the best at both sales and front desk, I had a unique place in that gym. Much like during jail, my social fluidity allowed me to float between the front desk, sales, training, the gym floor, with members, with the maintenance guy, and the crazy Asian towel lady who used to take yoga classes while on the clock. To me, that was my gym, and I saw Goodman my way around all three departments for the four years I spent with the company. I started my first personal training business, Synthesis Body Imaging, when I was 22 years old. 12 hours at work on every day I wasn't on campus for 14 hours to barely make $2,000 didn't make sense anymore. So I found a gym that let me run my own business, learned how to build a website, and told them to fuck off four weeks later. I kept the clients I liked and hit the ground running, directly into a wall. I opened in October and was in evictions court by December. Holidays, work trips, a car accident, a trip to Vegas, just gonna be fat until January... Everyone had a reason not to buy any sessions that month. By the time January came, I was so behind it didn't matter. So we didn't have food, electricity, or Christmas. Despite feeling like a fraud and a failure in every conceivable way, I still had to provide a service. My business was my lifeline to improving my situation, so I had to show up no matter how I felt. I was my product, and it was up to me to give my clients the experience they were paying for. Their results were my responsibility and a direct reflection of my worth, so I stuffed down the fear, disappointment, and feelings of inadequacy and smiled through a decade of sessions. My business grew quickly after I quit my second job, where Anisha and I originally met, actually, and finished college. I was able to put all of my efforts toward it. I was a significantly better trainer by this point and moved my business to Sledge, a hardcore warehouse gym. I spent all my time outside of training learning how to make how to market online, and had creating, created an amazing sales funnel, SEO, and online presence out of nothing. I put together a marketing plan that flipped my business model and tripled my income in a month. Around 24 and in shorts and a tank top, I closed a $10,000 prepaid deal and laid it all out on bed before ca- bed after cashing the check, since I didn't have a bank account. I was starting to develop a name for myself as a guy with answers, and I soon prided myself in being one of the smart trainers in town. In 2012, the gym I was working at got a boxing ring. I was training groups at this point, and my style incorporated bodybuilding with elements of the fun stuff like tires and sleds before it was cool. I always ended workouts with something badass to make them feel sweaty and tired, since I knew most people equate suffering with workout efficacy, and the endorphin rush would position me as an ass kicker. When the ring went in, I couldn't use the entire gym at the same time. So I slowly transitioned to the barbell side, figuring that if I ever owned my own place, I would be broke. Fucking profit, I tell you. And bars were cheaper than machines. So I started studying barbell training. My clients got better results and were actually enjoying their training more, which stood out in a gym full of people punishing themselves with exercise and only reinforced my brand. Things were going great until the gym started going south and everyone's training clients needed to start paying a membership fee that my monthly overhead was supposed to include. I understood where the owner was coming from, but couldn't overlook the fact that $1,500 a month was about to be generated from my business, and I wasn't getting any. 
I also felt guilty that my service would cost 30 to $50 more a month since I didn't respect myself enough to think I was worth it, and I tried to find a way to absorb the cost myself. When all but a few clients agreed to give me the same 30 to $50, I started looking to see what my new buying power could get. I figured out how to fund all the equipment and deposits, bought a home gym for $3,500 from a pastor moving to Florida, and opened the doors four weeks later. When I opened Savage Barbell Club, it was finally time to put my stamp on the Portland gym scene. At the time, it was small underdog gyms against the big corporate guys. Us hardcore, them wimpy, we train, they exercise. I built an entire brand around the fact that I couldn't afford real equipment. We focus on old school barbell training. Get strong, do deadlifts on a parking lot, flip tires, but not bitch-ass CrossFit tires. Pull trucks, vomit in a dumpster. You want actual results? Show up and don't be a bitch. All done with my plucky, insecure, and inviting style and scaled appropriately for everyone. I made hardcore accessible to everyone, including one of my former VPs from them. My new obsession with proving my strength, powerlifting, paralleled my obsession to prove my credibility with my business. I didn't feel strong or in control of anything. My training and my business were the only things that kept me feeling sane. I knew how to make people like me and how to solve their problems there. I knew what they wanted from me and how I needed to be, unlike everywhere else. For years, I tried to kill myself without knowing it. Training, studying, building, I did everything to an 11. 12-hour workdays and hard training five to six days a week. I'd been dieting for years at this point, but now firmly in the 260s. It was easier to tolerate failing at weight loss while helping others if I affirmed that I am now a powerlifter and it doesn't matter as long as my lifts are going up. So I trained, worked, and studied harder. I did four times the workload of anyone I coached because I could handle it. Then the pain came. Years of pain. Searing nerve pain that felt like a sword pulled out of the fire and driven into my leg, often waking me from a dead sleep and dropping me to the floor. I had plantar fasciitis so badly that I had to wake up 15 minutes early so I had time to make it down the stairs. I needed a CPAP to stay alive at night. I could fall asleep on two rock stars and pass a sobriety test after five whiskeys. At 280 plus, I couldn't speak up for myself, buy clothes anywhere at the mall, talk to my wife, or sit alone with my thoughts for five minutes, but I could squat and deadlift in the 600s and bench over 400. I was commended and respected for my ability to keep working no matter what. My relentless work ethic made me hardcore and a good coach. My lifting brought people in the doors and, I felt, justified me being different. My powerlifting team was the biggest and most dominant in the state. I brought some of the greatest lifters in history to Portland and my efforts permanently changed powerlifting in the Pacific Northwest. But I secretly hoped the gym would burn to the ground while I was inside. I started losing weight again in 2018. A cut that I think was initially motivated by an upcoming trip to Vegas. I'd been on TRT for a year and it didn't fix my weight, energy levels, or marriage, so I decided to get my shit together and focus on getting leaner since I was too hurt to compete. I was pretty smart with training, other people, by this point, and had started to take ownership of the programming I was writing and our team was seeing great results. I'd also finally dialed in the foods that helped me feel the best, that I actually enjoyed eating and still helped me get leaner but my work ethic came back to bite me later that year. 
December 2018 through June 2019 consisted of running the second largest charity lifting event in the country until I wanted to die. Both cars blowing up, selling everything we owned to downsize from a three-bedroom house to a one-bedroom apartment with one month notice. Having the police remove a manic brother-in-law armed with a machete from my house, losing half my income in a month, and a surprise separation that later ended in divorce. Deadlifting 800 pounds, 100 better than my previous best, with zero hype and tears in my eyes, on an empty stomach, weighing 220 for the first time since I became a powerlifter, the day my truck blew up, without training for it, permanently changed me. I broke all the rules, and it worked. Better. I texted Richard Hawthorne later that day to tell him that I finally understood what we had talked about in my living room until 4 a.m. together the year before. For most of the summer, I began experimenting with prolonged fasting. I'd utilized intermittent fasting in all its various forms for years, but never anything longer than 24 hours. I did 48 to 72 hour fasts most of the weeks that year and eventually worked up to a five day fast. Deadlifting 500 for 10 reps on my fourth day without food and eighth day without a wife also changed me. For the rest of the time since opening Savage, I broke the rules. I fasted and got stronger. I tried all kinds of weird training methods and made up new movements every time I trained. I had competitive lifters doing yoga breathing, listening to binaural tones, smelling essential oils, talking about feelings, and meditating. We were swinging kettlebells, pulling trucks, doing less and less powerlifting while watching totals skyrocket and lifters become more composed under the bar. We trained and learned as a team in the trenches. We experimented with different methods and refined our own. We got quiet and breathy at powerlifting meets rather than hyped and aggressive, and totals kept going up. I shared all the woo-woo on social media, and we, were, and we were starting to build a reputation for being weird among the other gyms in town, despite making immediate and drastic improvements to any of their lifters that visited, while also being friendlier and more fun. Toward the end, I could on-ramp a new lifter in less than four weeks, and they would have a better sense of physical, mental, and emotional awareness, movement skill, and general understanding of how to be a part of an advanced training crew than someone who had been training somewhere else for two to five years. My high school rookies looked better on the platform than half the coaches in town. My own training became a form of play again. It hit all my senses and was always changing. I could experiment with different methodologies, find new ways to mix things together, and be creative. The more variety I added to my movement, the better I felt, and the more open-minded and open-hearted I became. I could run, jump, do headstands, meditate for two hours, talk about my feelings, and pull 600 for five. I was working through all of the worst trauma and abuse in my life, but I could emotionally connect with my lifters, wasn't afraid to be different, and I was happy. The health and fitness industries know everyone is running from something, but they profit from selling us the wrong solution. From the start, I've used the terms health, fitness, and exercise reluctantly, and typically only for marketing purposes. Truth be told, I hate those words even more than swole, gains, and non-consensual conversations about protein intake with people at bars. 
They remind me of how I imagine it feels to be a middle-aged Buffalo Wild Wings metallic pewter Camry. My wife makes me eat grape nuts for my cholesterol. Nike Pro Athleisure Wear with a visor at Costco on a Sunday. White socks to check the mail outside. My step tracker tells me I'm healthy. Mick used to fuck. Impotent. While I'm only another pandemic away from 40 and definitely get regular blood work, watch my blood pressure, and make far too many decisions based on how I'll shit the next day, I want no part of what passes as health and longevity. Avoiding, avoiding death doesn't really get someone out of bed who's spent their life subconsciously chasing it, and the promise of 20 extra trips around the sun doesn't make me want to do the soul-crushing, monotonous bullshit called exercise that doesn't give me any cool new abilities. I want to be able to do things with my body. I want to feel the strain and emotions that only come from having multiple times my body weight on my back or in my hands. I want to feel the presence that you only understand when you are completely in tune with your body and testing the limits of your capabilities. I want to keep finding new ways to get stronger. I want to be abnormally big, strong, and resilient. I want to feel alive, energetic, attractive, and capable of doing things that the average person cannot. If I'm 60, I want to be the most jack-strong and capable sexual tyrannosaur out there at 60. If living to 100 means not actively squeezing new, challenging experiences out of my life, I'd rather just be done. This being my 20th year of my own training and 16th in the health and fitness industry as a gym membership salesman, front desk girl, personal trainer, personal training business owner, gym owner, powerlifting coach, and powerlifting meet coordinator... Let me tell you, I have seen some shit. And I'm a patterns guy. My story is as unique as it isn't. As a healthcare recipient, I was pumped full of drugs without anyone asking if both parents were smokers, told to avoid exercise, never educated on the relationship between diet and autoimmunity, and told that the physical, mental, and emotional health aren't interrelated or capable of being developed. They said that I was doomed and dependent and ought to fervently hide from danger and aspire to long-term mediocrity if I wanted a long, healthy life. As a fitness enthusiast, I was someone looking to fix an emotional need, insecurity, inadequacy, abuse, trauma, anxiety, depression, with a physical intervention, diet and exercise. I had things I wanted to change about myself but couldn't. So I picked the things about myself that I didn't like and sought to change them through virtue and effort instead. The industry welcomed me with open arms, offering fads that were doomed to fail and encouraging me to mistrust and punish my body into health. As a competitive lifter, I was encouraged to embrace and expect pain as part of the process, that I can always work around injuries as long as I'm smart enough, that the body can be outsmarted or beaten into any form or capacity that my lifting determined my credibility, and that I'd be fucked up if I kept with it long enough. As a fitness professional, I was taught to join a camp. Strength is different from health, is different from spirituality, is different from weight loss, is different from personality, is different from performance, is different from trauma, is different from posture, is different from weight gain, is different from identity, is different from longevity, is different from conditioning, is different from balance, is different from emotions, is different from strength. I was taught to mistrust who overlook why, that the solution was always due, and that my job was to sell how. 
I've seen it in the industry leaders, in myself, in the hundreds of people I've coached, and the coaches, gym owners, and lifters I've met and competed against, from novice to all-time elite. I've seen it in the products, protocols, and personalities promoted from both medical and fitness sectors. Everyone is hiding, and the machine runs on fear. Fear your body. It's going to break. Don't trust what you feel. It's probably wrong. Getting strong will cost your health. Being healthy means being a pussy, but for longer than the risky people. Being strong will cost you your health. Suppressed emotions make a strong mind and body. Some part of you that has no effect on any other parts of you is fundamentally flawed and in need of correction. Physically, mentally, or emotionally, you could be better. There's a way to fix you out there somewhere, and you aren't capable of determining what or how for yourself. If you suck in more than one way, go find a qualified professional who specializes in each part. Most of your health is predetermined and cannot be improved beyond a certain point, so you'd be foolish to look within for any answers. Fuck healthy and the industries it wrote in on. Strength, health, longevity, and life are ours to enjoy and build. Using them is as much a privilege no one should be without as it is a personal and societal responsibility, capacity to build over a lifetime, and necessary part of the human experience. We were never meant to be weak, frail, afraid, or dependent on an outside authority. We were designed to be strong, creative, resilient, and aware of ourselves and our relationship to the world around us. We were meant to tend to our bodies like a loving gardener, to enjoy its capacity for movement and strength, and to experience the fullness and physicality of emotion and purpose until the time comes to make room for someone else. To face death by embracing strength, health, and the fullness of life. This is vitality. If there's one pattern to highlight from 2020, it's that the fitness and health industries have failed us greatly. Their consistent diet of fear and lies has left us mentally unstable, emotionally abused, physically disconnected, spiritually malnourished, and socially inflamed. I think, by and large, they've done more harm than good, and it's time to slay the dragons and fly a new flag. Vitality is something we're all chasing, but are too afraid to define for ourselves. So we hide behind goals, fitness, sex, and expertise, each creating an avatar of our ideal self on which to create an identity and find belonging. It's a symphony of being and doing, of connection to self and others, and a conversation that the health and fitness professionals don't seem to know how to have. They don't even have the language to try. I've been in health, fitness, and competitive athletics for more than half of my life, and I still think that the industry lies, practitioners don't understand the full picture, exercises for wimps, and I would still rather be dead than healthy. Like many of you, I needed a paradigm that addressed all of who I am and gave me the power and permission to do something about it. You have permission to defy health, define and develop vitality for yourself, and deploy your fullness of life back into a sick, sad world that desperately needs you at your best. Maybe my story will help you decide to do the same. Thank you for listening to the Jaren Out Loud podcast. For more of my content, including ether training log, written blog posts, and more, be sure to visit jarenoutloud.com. 
There you can sign up for my weekly newsletter where you can have the latest updates and content delivered right to your inbox. I promise not to be annoying about it. This episode is brought to you by Cynical TV, Vitality Education On Demand. There, Anisha and I teach you to defy the status quo, define vitality for yourself, develop the skills and capacities to build a life of vitality on your own, and deploy the fullness of who you were meant to be into your families, communities, and your own life. Enjoy a free one-week trial as well as half off your first month by using promo code OUTLOUD.